And so, they say a week is a long time in politics. Well, you've got four more of them before we vote in the most important election since devolution. It's Holyrood 2021. Sturgeon is on course for a majority SNP win at Holyrood. Alex Salmon says he's having the time of his life on the campaign. And we meet our man in Mauritius, delivering UK overseas support. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. Uh, I've never enjoyed politics so much as I did in that summer of 2014, when everything seemed within reach within grasp, the, the cause that so many people over generations, over centuries, uh, had uh, fought for and campaigned for and strove for, uh, seemed just within touching distance. And uh, the thing that made it so inspiring was the grassroots enthusiasm. In fact, if we'd got that campaign mobilised earlier, uh, I think it could have carried us over the line. But it was a great, enormous, wonderful feeling, not just for me, but for hundreds of thousands of people in Scotland, sometimes people who'd never been engaged in politics before or since. Matinva, Fiskama. Campaigning in Scotland's digital election is underway online and on the streets. There's virtual door knocking and real leafleting across the country as we prepare to elect the sixth session of the Scottish Parliament. Opinion polls are but a snapshot. The politicians will tell you the only poll that matters, of course, is the one on election day unless the snapshot is favouring them. Holyrood's voting system is designed to prevent any one party having a majority, but the SNP broke that programme back in 2011. That led to IndyRef 1 in 2014, when the people said no to independence. This year, opinion polls are consistently showing Nicola Sturgeon on track to secure another majority. The latest Ipsos Mori poll for STV News gives the SNP 70 seats. That's up seven from the last election and its highest ever return. That would give the SNP leverage to call for IndyRef 2. This poll, along with that in The Courier last week, suggests Alex Hammond and the Alaba party would have no return. He confidently predicts taking four seats on the regional list in North East Scotland and replicating that right across the country. In two weeks' time, this station will bring you a special edition of The Week in Holyrood, featuring those leading the six largest parties in Scotland. Alex Hammond will be part of that edition. This week, I caught up with the man who started making the news when I started writing it. Alex Hammond, uh, leader of the Alaba Party, welcome to The Week in Holyrood. I should say, welcome back to The Week in Holyrood, a programme that launched when you were first elected First Minister. So it's a, a welcome home in many respects. It's great to be back, Charles. Can I ask you, how goes the campaign for Alaba? Like a Gaelic song, uh, as uh, now that I've got the correct pronunciation of Alaba, uh, like a Gaelic song, which I'm told by uh, Angus Brendan McNeil means very good indeed. <clears throat> so, uh, no, it's going great. I mean, I, if you'd told me less than two weeks ago when this party was launched, that we'd already be registering uh, on the opinion polls, we'd have... Uh, overtaken the, the Liberal Democrats in terms of membership in Scotland, that we're about to overtake the Green Party in terms of elected councillors in Scotland, and we've overtaken the Labour Party in terms of number of MPs at Westminster from Scotland, uh, then I would be very, very surprised indeed by the rapidity of our progress. So things couldn't be going better, and the 32 candidates we've got across Scotland, 18 women and 14 men, are of first-class calibre, and we are proud to uh, have them uh, standing under the Alapa standard. Perhaps one of the disappointments, however, may be the lack of SNP members coming across to Alaba, or at least that we know of. Oh, there's plenty of SNP members. Uh, doesn't a day go past without me talking to high-ranking members of the SNP who are asking when they can come across to Alapa, either during this campaign or uh, after this campaign, for that matter. But in terms of what's already been announced, I mean, two serving members of the Westminster Parliament uh, and seven serving councillors 
uh, among our list of uh, of 32 candidates. I mean, that is a considerable movement from the SNP. But I want to be quite clear about this. ALAP are not just looking for members from the Scottish National Party. ALAP are looking for members from across the political spectrum. Anybody who has a, a care and an interest for Scotland and wants to see our country independent and self-governing. I mean, that's ALAP's catchment area is not restricted to the Scottish National Party. ALAP's catchment area, if I had to express it in a uh, a particular phrase would be if we think back to the high summer of 2014 uh, and the Yes campaign and it's all its uh, grassroots wonder and uh, multifarious manifestations. That's the Alipa Party because it captures, in my estimation, that joy, that optimism, that enthusiasm that the Yes campaign demonstrated at grassroots and that's the catchment area that Alap are looking for in terms of membership and supporters. We go back a long way, you and I, when you first started making the news, I'd first started to write the news. What's keeping you going? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Charles, I mean, I've spent just more than two years uh, undergoing various things, of course, uh, and going through various things, but one of the great frustrations is not being able to speak about the future of Scotland. I, I spent my entire life uh, thinking and acting, I hope, in Scotland's interests, and, and talking about the future and thinking about the future and thinking what's best for Scotland. I mean, I'm speaking to you from Ellen in Aberdeenshire. In the last election here, there were 137,000 people voted SNP on the regional list vote, and they got precisely zero, zero MSPs for their trouble. If these people, even half of these people, and the others were hoping to attract, vote ALAPA on the regional list vote in this election, will have four ALAPA MSPs elected from the North East, and that pattern will be repeated the length and breadth for Scotland. So that's our challenge. The logic's unassailable. We just have to get that argument across to the people to build the supermajority for independence in the Scots Parliament. And that's what's giving me my enthusiasm in this campaign. It would be incorrect of me not to ask you if you have any regrets over recent years, and if now would be the time to express those and move on. Oh, I have uh, expressed these, uh, Charles, and uh, people are perfectly entitled to ask that question, but they only have to consult the record. And everything I've said, I've said, everything I said previously, way back, and things I said in the trial, all I've got to say to people is, you know, the trial took place over a year ago. I was acquitted on all charges by a, a female-dominated jury who heard all of the evidence in front of a lady judge. And uh, I think people should just accept that. And the result of the civil case where the actions of the Scottish Government were judged in the court of session, the highest court in the land, uh, to be unlawful, unfair, tainted by bias, the result of the, the jury and the free investigation. So my view is that we should just accept all of the results of these, the ones we like and the ones we've got reservations about, uh, and move on. And exactly what I'm doing in the campaign is moving on. And moving on, looking for a supermajority, you're keen to have independence talks beginning in the first week of the new parliament. That's essential. Uh, but if we elect, as I hope we do, uh, a strength of a supermajority, the Sunday Times poll at the weekend indicated 80 uh, independence supporters. I mean, that would mean there was 50 union supporters, roughly. Uh, now, I think we can do better than that. I think we can get to 90 independent supporting MSPs if people rally to the Alipa standard on the regional list vote. But that supermajority, in my estimation, should in the first week of the new parliament direct the Scottish government to open independence negotiations with Westminster, with Whitehall. Uh, and that should be a move showing the strength, the determination that things have changed in Scotland and there is a real wish and urgency to get across the independence message and to start the independence negotiations. How does it feel being at the centre of an election campaign once again? Oh, I'm having a great time. And uh, I, I mentioned the Yes movement earlier from 2014 uh, in the high summer. Uh, that was the time of my life. Uh, I've never enjoyed politics so much than I did in that summer of 2014, when everything seemed within reach, within grasp. The, the cause that so many people over generations, over centuries, uh, had uh, fought for and campaigned for and strove for uh, seemed just within touching distance. And uh, the thing that made it so inspiring was the grassroots enthusiasm. In fact, if we'd got that 
campaign mobilised earlier, uh, I think it could have carried us over the line. But it was a great, enormous, wonderful feeling, not just for me, but for hundreds of thousands of people in Scotland, sometimes people who had never been engaged in politics before or since. Uh, and now I feel that same momentum, that same enthusiasm, that same multifarious, wonderful coalition coming together again and getting behind Alapa on the regional list. So I'm having absolutely the time of my life. I'm enjoying things enormously. And I hope, and well, I know the other people in the campaign have got uh, very similar views. Alex Salmond, leader of the Alaba Party, thank you for joining us again on the Week in Holyrood. And I look forward to you joining us for the Leader's Special in a few weeks' time. Thank you. I look forward to that and congratulations for holding the, the first broad cross-party debate. This is an election like no other, not least as it's being held during the COVID pandemic. Yes, the country is opening up. Yes, restrictions are being loosened. But the virus is still active and it still threatens lives. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. We're seeing some countries, France for example, applying uh, new lockdowns. Uh, So that's what could still happen here if we uh, let down our guard too far or too quickly. And it's that that we've got to together collectively uh, be determined that we're not going to allow to happen here. And to sustain our progress, it is really important that we ease restrictions cautiously and carefully. Uh, That's why the changes that came into force over the weekend, although significant and will make a difference to many people, were nevertheless cautious changes. Uh, On Friday, the previous stay-at-home rule was replaced with guidance to stay local except for certain purposes. And as you will know, a number of other changes came into force yesterday. Contact sports are now allowed for 12 to 17-year-olds. All shops can now operate click-and-collect services again. Car showrooms and forecoats can reopen. So can homeware stores, garden centres, hairdressers and barbers. I hope people will enjoy uh, making the most of these additional services. But I would ask everybody to please continue to use your common sense to protect yourselves and others. Uh, So for retail services, that means if you need an appointment for a service, make sure that you do book in advance. Don't go to places that are busy, uh, even garden centres. If they look busy, come away go back at a time when it might be quieter. And please follow any advice or instructions that are being given by staff because they are working under pressure, but they are doing their very best to try to keep everybody safe. Uh, More generally, as the weather improves, I I say that uh, with a a bit of a wry smile, given the weather we're experiencing right now, but as hopefully the weather will improve in the weeks to come, uh, many of us will be able to meet up a bit more with friends out of doors. And I think it's really important that we do get the ability uh, to take advantage of that. But again, it's really important that we take sensible precautions. Uh, Don't, for now, meet in groups of more than four people for adults, Uh, that four people uh, should not have any more than two households within it. Most people I know are following all of these rules really rigidly and I'm hugely grateful for that. But I'm stressing this point particularly about outdoor gatherings because we did see some scenes at the weekend, particularly on the meadows here in Edinburgh, that were of considerable concern. Uh, Police officers should not have to get involved in dispersing large groups of people. Um, I know the restrictions remain really tough. And I know why people want to meet up in larger groups. I think we all have a a desperate desire to see more of our friends and family. But the fact remains, the best way for all of us to be able to do that in the hopefully near future now is to keep these case numbers as low as possible while the vaccination programme continues to gather pace. And the best way to do that for all of us is to try to take the sensible precautions and abide by all of the advice that is in place. Now, if we do continue to keep the virus under control, as I hope we will, uh, we expect to be able to make further, more significant changes on the 26th of April. Uh, I hope to confirm these changes, which would include a full reopening of retail and the first phase, quite significant first phase, of the reopening of hospitality. Uh, I hope to be able to confirm that on the 20th of April. Um, I can also confirm today that to support the further easing of restrictions, we intend to further expand the availability of routine testing. Uh, We do intend to move to a situation where lateral flow tests, which are the tests that give 
quicker results uh, will be available twice a week on a universally accessible basis. We'll set out more detail hopefully later this week on how tests can be accessed and from what date. Uh, this testing will be in addition to and it will supplement the existing uh, testing routes that are in place in priority areas. We set those out in our updated testing strategy last month. And this more universal approach to asymptomatic testing will allow us to assess the impact that that might have on further suppressing transmission. So all of these things are positive and uh, it's certainly the case uh, right now that we're on the, the right track and a good track in Scotland. But if we're going to stay on it, we need everybody to continue to play their part, especially since we are still determined to prioritise getting young people back to school. So let me turn now to that. I can confirm that uh, having assessed the data with the input of our clinical advisors, uh, that when the Easter holidays end, virtually all pupils will return to school full-time. So secondary schools after Easter will go back uh, to in-person full-time learning. Uh, the one exception to this is children who are on the shielding list. We are continuing to recommend that they stay at home until the 26th of April, uh, and that's in line with advice already received uh, from the Chief Medical Officer. All other pupils, though, will return to school once the new term starts. Uh, this, I know, will be a huge relief to many children and young people and, of course, to many parents and carers. And as I said a moment ago, uh, by the end of April, we uh, want to see children on the shielding list also get back to school uh, in person as well. I know, though, that the return to school, particularly for older pupils, will cause concern and anxiety to pupils, to parents and, of course, to teachers and others who work in schools. So let me give an assurance uh, that we will continue to give uh, paramount consideration to safety. The return to school will involve, uh, as it did last August, uh, the removal where necessary of strict two-metre physical distancing between pupils uh, in secondary school, uh, but we are asking schools to consider how they strengthen other mitigations. For example, we've committed almost £400 million of funding uh, to help with education recovery, and I know that many councils have been using some of this funding to monitor and improve ventilation in schools. The Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross says he'll focus on economic recovery if elected as First Minister. He tells my colleague at ITV News, Peter Smith, Talk of Indie Ref 2 is but a distraction. It's absolutely a recovery. We've come through the worst 12 months anyone could imagine. So many sacrifices from individuals, families, businesses and communities. And we've got to focus on our recovery. So I've got plans for education, plans to protect jobs, plans to stimulate our economy. But none of that can happen if we still have a focus on independence. The nationalists want to take us back to that debate over another independence referendum. And that puts at threat everything we're trying to do to recover as a country. Is it the case a vote for the Scottish Conservatives is a clear vote to say no to Indy Ref 2? We're the only party saying that I think it's sad that we haven't heard from the other opposition parties that they would oppose another independence referendum in the same way we are. We can see the threat from Nicola Sturgeon's nationalists or Alex Salmon's nationalists that they want to take our parliament and our politics back to the division of the past. You can't have a recovery and a referendum. That's why we've got to stop the nationalists getting that majority so we can have a recovery. If the nationalists um, do get that majority, the SNP get that majority, is it the case that then they will have a mandate for a second referendum? Well, I don't want to get to that stage. I don't want our politics, like it has for the last 14 and a half years while the SNP have been in power, to be dominated by that subject. Rather than trying to protect people's jobs, rather than trying to support our NHS, you can do none of that. You can't have a recovery the Prime while you've got a referendum. Request, but it doesn't matter, because the Prime Minister had basically been taken out of the equation with the Nationalists saying they'll go ahead with a referendum regardless. That's the threat. If you vote Nationalists, you're voting for another referendum and that division of the past. And I think, you know, I'm just saying, we, well, I was just going to say, Peter, that's an you know, interesting we, thing you if, said there, if I can just pick yeah. up on that, uh, uh, Mr Ross, is that you're saying if you vote nationalist, you are voting for another referendum. That kind of gives some legitimacy to this being a referendum on a referendum. You vote Conservative, you're saying no to another referendum. You're saying if you vote SNP, you're saying yes to another referendum. So that is almost a democratic way for people in Scotland to tell you that they can hear your argument, that they can hear Nicola Sturgeon's argument, and if they say by majority they want another independence referendum, 
do you respect the democratic will? But we know people who, even people who support independence, are saying now is not the time to take us through that division of the past. Now is not the time to have our politics and our parliament focused on a referendum. But you've just said that that people know that those are the choices. Democratically, do you respect that if the SNP get the majority, that they have a mandate as much as that you want them to respect that if people of Scotland don't give the majority, there's no mandate? Well, that's what I'm saying. The people of Scotland can decide. They can stop the SNP getting a majority. And the only way to do that is to vote Scottish Conservatives. We won't support another independence referendum. We haven't heard that from Scottish Labour Party or Scottish Liberal Democrats. They're not willing to work with me and the other parties to stop another independence referendum. And we can only do that. We can only stop the Nationalists, stop that majority by voting Scottish Conservative in the same way people did five years ago. In 2016, we stopped SNP um, government being formed as a majority and we stopped their plans for another referendum. I just, I'm, just, I'm not going to push on any more on this, but just the final word on it. Is there a way for the people of Scotland to tell you in a way that you will accept democratically that they want a second independence referendum? Well, we had that referendum in 2014 and if people vote for the SNP, they are endorsing their policies for another independence referendum. And you will accept that? And if they get a majority, people have to accept that our parliament is again going to be dominated by the arguments of a divisive independence referendum. I don't want that and people can stop that by voting Scottish Conservative. Will you accept that they would have a mandate? I'm saying if you vote SNP, you are a endorsing their plans for another divisive referendum. Vote Scottish Conservative, you can stop that. Okay. On the issue of the COVID recovery, young people in this country have been really heavily affected uh, in many ways. Their futures, their golden years of their life, and they're pretty, a lot of them are pretty despondent about their futures just now. What's your message to the young people in this country to, to give them some hope? Yep. No, well, we've got to have a catch-up plan for education. Young people have been out of school over the last 12 months, far more than they've actually been in the classroom. That's why we've committed to a £120 million catch-up premium for every school pupil across the country. We're going to invest over the next parliament in 3,000 additional teachers because over the SNP's time in office they've cut the number of teachers, they've cut the subjects available to young people, they've cut the opportunities for young people. So we want to ensure at school they have all the opportunities they need with a national tutoring scheme and so many other policies to take them forward. And then when they leave school, I want to give people opportunities. They can choose to go to university or, like me, go to college or go straight into work or straight into an apprenticeship to say there's no wrong turn for a young person in this country. But again, we can't focus on that. We can't focus on education being the number one priority of our parliament and all our politicians when Nicola Sturgeon and the Nationalists want to take us back to another referendum. On another constitutional argument that we've been through is Brexit. Mm-hmm. How is Brexit impacting the future of these young people in Scotland right now? Well, I think one thing, Brexit's allowing us to roll out the vaccination programme and uh, the scheme here in Scotland and across the UK has been better than any other country in Europe. So we've just got to look at our way out of this pandemic, the sacrifices people, and particularly young people, have made over the last 12 months. We are seeing a quicker relaxation of the tight restrictions that we've all lived through because of the vaccination programme. When we are filming this just now, just short of two and a half million people in Scotland have been protected at the weekend we got through the 30 million barrier in the whole of the UK protected by a vaccine that is not available in the same numbers in the same quantities in any other country in Europe. So you're optimistic about the future uh, with, with Brexit? I'm really optimistic about Scotland going forward. I want okay. uh, an optimistic future for Scotland. I don't want the same divisive arguments we've had here over the last 14 years. Douglas Ross says the Prime Minister may not now join him on the campaign trail. Mr Ross blames the pandemic for crafting what he calls a very different election. In January, Boris Johnson said wild horses couldn't keep him away from the Scottish election campaign. Now, Peter Smith at ITV News again, this time with Labour leader Anas Sawa. Cancer has touched everyone across our country at some point, either through direct experience or a family member or a friend. And the truth is we have 7,000 undiagnosed cancers across the country because we've missed out on over half a million screening programme visits over the course of the country in the last year, 7,000 undiagnosed cancers. Cancer still remains Scotland's biggest killer, even during this pandemic. So how we restart our cancer services, how we do a mass catch-up through our rapid diagnostic centres right across the country, how we fast-track those operations so we can save people's lives is so personal to me, and that's my, if you want to call it, favourite policy in, in this campaign. We've been hearing from quite a lot of young people in Scotland that are pretty despondent right now. They feel they've made a lot of sacrifices, the golden years of their lives, uh, and they were at least at risk from the virus being critical to them. Um, What can you say to young people in Scotland to enthuse them that they have a bright future? Well, there's two parts of that. There's those that are of school age, and that's why an education comeback plan is so important. 
Um, I want us to do an individual assessment for every pupil across the country. That's not just an educational assessment, but it has to be a mental health assessment as well. I want us, to, for those children that have been most directly impacted, have a tutoring programme so they can catch up. I want us to guarantee a job for every young person. And the way we do that is more investment in apprenticeships, a jobs guarantee scheme, yes, in the public sector, but also in the voluntary sector. But if we recognise there's going to be challenges in the private sector as well and we want to restart businesses, then why not engage the private sector in that as well so we can get jobs for young people across the country? Because I am absolutely determined that we cannot have a lost generation coming out of this uh, virus. Young people have missed out on vital education. They've missed out on vital bonds and relationships that they build in those formative years. I want us to catch up on that. Is that so going to be a fully costed promise from Scottish well, Labour? Absolutely, Luke, because we can't allow a generation to go forgotten. It would be an absolute travesty if we came through COVID and we allowed an entire generation. This is going to scar them potentially for the rest of their lives. It would be a disaster if we forgot that generation. So one part is educational support. One part is getting them back to work. But it's also about recognising the health needs they're going to have too. So the, we're going to have a tsunami of mental health cases across the country. So how we have adequate mental health services that are there when people need them. So when people are picking up the phone, the calls are getting answered. On 25,000 occasions during this pandemic, someone has built up the courage, picked up the phone, dialed the NHS crisis service, and the call has gone unanswered. That's not acceptable. That's not good enough. And that's what should be making people angry in our politics. Not arguing about egos, not arguing about old, old arguments, not trying to settle scores. These are the things we should be obsessing about and getting angry about in our politics. Well, the constitutional debates that we've had in the country on independence and on Brexit, Labour have been squeezed out you know, by both of those debates. Where yeah. do you stand on Brexit? Look I, look, I want us to have as close a relationship with the European Union as possible. I wanted us to remain in the United Kingdom, sorry, in the European Union as well as in the United Kingdom. I want us to remain in the European Union. Um, but, you know, because of Brexit, Tory Britain, that was never allowed to happen. I want us to have as close a relationship with the EU as we possibly can. What about independence? But, but I'm going to be honest. I can only credibly argue for saying let's not go back to the old arguments, let's not reopen those old debates that have gripped our politics for the last 10 years. If I say one thing on Brexit and I say another thing on independence, what I want our country to do is to focus for, on what unites us, not what divides us. So we focus behind a national recovery, not going back to the yes-no, leave-remain divides. Because the truth, Peter, is this, is this virus has hit you equally, whether you are a yes or a no or a leave or a remain. You're still being hit by furlough. You've still lost lives. You've still missed out on cancer treatment. You're still worried about your children. And I think people would expect our politics to pull together over this next phase and not go back to those binary choices. People will have a choice in this election, though. Um, they will be able to hear what you're saying and what other parties are saying. And one of the, obviously, the main arguments from the SNP is that they want to have a second referendum. Yeah. If, democratically, <clears throat> the people of Scotland vote by majority SNP, do you accept that they have a mandate to have a second independence referendum? The first thing I'd say is, of course it's Scotland's right to choose its own future. And in this election campaign, it's about politicians arguing for what they truly believe, doing it honestly. I don't believe independence is right for Scotland. I but would believe, you accept that outcome? I don't believe the focus of a referendum is right for us in Scotland, and that's why I want to persuade Scotland that we have another alternative. And the challenge that you have, I think, with, with the First Minister talking about a referendum and actually locking a referendum in so tightly with our recovery is I think it shows you her blind spot. You have a First Minister who is obsessed about independence, who is obsessed about a referendum but Mr. Sarr, and has a blind spot on that recovery. Hear, people will hear your argument and they'll hear her argument. Yep. Up, and when May the 6th comes and they cast their vote, if Scotland votes by majority for the SNP... I don't think just, that's going to happen. Okay, I, sure, I genuinely but, do but not I'm think... Not, I'm not asking you to really engage in hypotheticals because it's a very real prospect. You are prospect. asking me to engage but, in hypotheticals. But, no, but this is a very real prospect. People have the two, the two, two yeah, options here. If they choose... Uh, and, and it may well be that the SNP could be getting that majority. I'm just saying that it, so that voters know what they're going to the, the, the polling stations on, if the SNP get the majority, would you say, fair enough, you've got a mandate for no, a second no, referendum? So, so, so first thing I say is nobody has cast a single vote in this election campaign yet. Of course the SNP are going to campaign. They need to make their mind up, first of all, whether people are judging them on their pandemic record, judging them on 14 years of failure, or judging them on whether they want an independence referendum. The premise I'm making in this election campaign is I don't support independence, I don't support a referendum, but I want to focus on what unites our country, not what divides it. And I think at this period of national crisis, 
when we're coming through a pandemic, when 10,000 of our fellow citizens have lost their lives. I'll take that as a Let's no. Focus. I don't support independence. Sure. Don't support I'll take referendum. that as a no. You won't support the SNP's no, I mandate. Don't, I, I don't support independence. I don't support a referendum. Mm. But let's focus on that national recovery so we can get our country back on track. The former leader of Dundee City Council, George Galloway, is aiming for a seat at Holyrood. Mr Galloway says his All for Unity party is standing candidates in the eight parliamentary regions of Scotland. He's keen to preserve the United Kingdom and, in George Galloway's own words, tackle the scourge of separatism. The lack of confidence which so many in Scotland rightly have in the ability, sometimes the willingness, of those charged with, paid for, to be the defenders of the Union of the United Kingdom. A lack of confidence which is well justified by 14 years of failure to hold the SNP minority government to account and to stop it in its tracks. As a great man once said, if you do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, it's a sure sign of madness. And we're here to say that approaching these elections the way we approached the last ones and the ones before that would be a sign of madness. And I've got to tell you, or you wouldn't be here otherwise, a significant number of Scottish people agree with us. Scotland votes in the most important election since devolution on the 6th of May. How you vote can shape the nation, and your question to the leaders can inspire. I'm Charles Fletcher. Email your question to holyroodleaders at gmail.com. The Week in Holyrood, bringing the Scottish election home. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And still to come in this half hour, we meet our man in Mauritius and mark the work being done by the Commonwealth Graves Commission. An unwelcome milestone has been reached in Scotland this week in the battle against the pandemic. More than 10,000 people have died, their passing linked to COVID-19. The figures are from the National Records of Scotland. The mark comes as debate intensifies on the use of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. It's been halted in several countries on the continent and here alternatives will be given to the under-30s who've yet to have their first vaccination. National Clinical Director Professor Jason Leach says they'll be given the Pfizer and Moderna jabs. There's evidence that a very small number of people may be prone to blood clots linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Nicola Sturgeon addressed the concern this week. On vaccine passports, I mean, I've been given giving uh, the answer I'm about to give for the last few days. And what I, I think we need to, to do with the concept of vaccine passports or vaccine certification is not close our minds to it. We all want to get back to normal. So anything that can play a part in getting us back to normal is something we should think about very carefully. But nor should we just gloss over the practical and ethical issues that we have to think through properly. And I think if we're going to have a system of vaccine certification, then it's really important that if the public are to have confidence in that and if there's to be buy-in and acceptance of that, then we have taken the time openly, not behind closed doors in government buildings, but openly with the public, aired all of the issues and aired some of the challenges in that in summary, uh, the two uh, sort of sets of issues that we've got to think through are firstly issues relating to the efficacy of the vaccine. All of the data we've had about the impact of vaccine so far has been really positive, perhaps more positive than we would have dared hope for at the turn of the year. And that includes the data on the impact the vaccine has on the transmission of the virus. We realised very quickly, and this was anticipated, but it began to be seen very quickly in our data for deaths that the vaccine was reducing the number of deaths uh, in care homes and in the older population. What has been less certain is whether the vaccine stops people 
getting and passing on the virus? And therefore, you know, would it still be a risk for somebody who had been vaccinated, who might nevertheless get the vaccine if they were circulating normally, pass it on to somebody who hadn't been vaccinated? Now, the data on that is positive, but there are still unanswered questions there. And that is quite significant in terms of then being able to judge just how, you know, safe relying on vaccine certification would be. And the second basket of issues really are the ethical inequity issues. Uh, right now, the vaccine is not approved for uh, younger people, you know, people under 16. Uh, so if we, ha if we have a system where having a vaccine passport gets you into certain places, uh, but if you don't have a vaccine passport, you can't get into certain places, then that raises issues of fairness for people who right now can't get vaccinated, younger people, and there will be some people who, for health reasons, are not able to get the vaccine. We need to think through all of these things safely. I think it might have been Jason that was telling me this recently. Forgive me if I'm wrong about that, but I think in Israel, where they are making use of some vaccine certification, children can't get into a restaurant. Their parents can go in, but children have got to sit outdoors. So these are things that possibly we can work our way through, but we've got to think about them and we've got to make sure that people are comfortable. Otherwise, you know, we could see something being counterproductive rather than helpful. So we want to have an open discussion. We are very hooked into work that's been done on a Four Nations basis and international work that is being done on this. And my last point before handing over to Jason, who may want to say more about this as well as the questions you directed to him, is that there may be um, a, a distinction between using vaccine passports for international travel uh, versus using them for access to things domestically, because some of the issues that we have to consider might differ depending on what we're talking about. So that's a, a fairly long-winded way of saying we just don't know for sure yet exactly what role they will play. I'm not one of these people that says never, ever, ever, because I think we need to be open-minded to anything that helps us get back to normality, but nor am I one of these people that just says, well, just forget some of the really complex issues that we've got to think through. Let's have a grown-up debate about this and uh, trial where that is appropriate, learn lessons as we go, but get to the right position through a, a, a mature grown-up debate. Thanks, First Minister. So very quickly, the only thing I would add on, on COVID passports is I think the use of the word passport has perhaps confused things a little bit. I, I think COVID certification in the round will, will become a thing. TV companies are already using COVID certification to allow them to film so, so that already exists. That might be about testing. It might be about previous infection. And it may in the future be about vaccination. And international travel at some point is already doing that. Some airlines are insisting on it. Some countries are insisting. So Israel, you have to be vaccinated to fly in. So that won't be up to us. We will have to take a view on what a certificate looks like for the Scots. Further than that, though, I think you get into really difficult territory and it will be a judgment for politicians all over the world whether they decide what that certificate means for entertainment, for sports, for other areas. We will give advice about what that would mean, but I think that you will see that all over the world being decided by politicians quite, quite rightly. But I, I'm sceptical about the vaccine bit linking into pubs and bars and restaurants. Your other two questions, very quickly, Glenn. Beauty salons, I, I, I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer about the... Uh, specifics of beauty salons but every sector once they're open then want guidance that allows them to do more so places of worship want to sing hairdressers want to be able to cut hair without face coverings on beauty salons once open now want face I, I, I feel their pain I absolutely understand but we have to put in place mitigations to allow those businesses to conduct business and it's really, really difficult in those areas in particular where it restricts what they're allowed to do. But for now, those are the rules. I hope that in the not-too-distant future, each of those examples will be able to be removed and we'll do it just as quickly as we possibly can. Your third point about the AstraZeneca vaccine, you'll know that the groups who look at this for us, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and the MHRA, are considering these data almost on a daily basis just now. The position today is that the benefits outweigh the risk at all age groups and the vaccine programme across the UK continues at pace. We don't anticipate that changing. If it changes, then they will tell us and we will take that advice. We're monitoring it all over the world. I read Danish data this morning in a Lancet publication 
that compared the Danish number of blood clots with routine years of blood clots, forgive the slightly impersonal nature of that, and their numbers are not significantly different. So we do have to be careful, particularly as we move down the age groups where the benefits perhaps shift a little, but we have very clever scientists looking at that for us and we'll let you know as soon as they change. Professor Jason Leach ending that sequence. Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie insists his party can make gains in the election. Once the party of coalition with Labour in the early years of the Scottish Parliament, the Lib Dems took five seats at the last Holyrood election in 2016. He says Scotland is at a crossroads and needs to focus on recovery from Covid. We are going to gain more MSPs because we have a powerful message. Put recovery first. We have a strong team of candidates including more women in winnable positions than ever before. We have a record of action, making a difference in Parliament and beyond. But there is a but. We need to work for these wins. We need you to spread the message, campaign hard, spend every moment of the next seven weeks making the case to put recovery first. We put education recovery first when we won £60 million in additional support in the recent Scottish Government budget for education bounce back. We put mental health recovery first when we won £120 million of support for mental health. We put jobs recovery first when we won the case for more grants for business, including the 100% rates relief for business. We put climate recovery first when we must just transition support for workers in the oil and gas sector in the northeast, and when we won extra support for farming environmental schemes. On education, mental health, jobs and the climate, the priority of the Liberal Democrats for the next five years is to put recovery first. The priority for the SNP for the next five years is to put another independence referendum first. Reasonable people would agree, no matter what they think about independence, that this is not the moment for another referendum. But they see in the news that the SNP want a vote on this by Christmas. In the middle of a pandemic, when thousands have lost their lives, thousands more have lost their job, and our normal freedoms have been taken from us. Now is not the moment for that long, divisive, argumentative, exhausting and all-consuming event. An event that would suffocate our country, snuff out debate on other important matters and split our country asunder. We don't have to guess what it would be like. We've had an independence referendum before. Families were split, friendships were broken, business was lost. And we had... Brexit. The scars are deep. Independence would be like Brexit Mark II. Independence would be like Brexit on a rocket to Mars. It would take a lot of energy, the journey would be very long, and there would be no way back. The co-leader of the Scottish Greens, Patrick Harvey, says he has ambitions for his party, but that doesn't necessarily mean going into government with another party. Speaking on Face to Face with Colin Mackay on STV, Mr Harvey claims the Greens have had substantial impact over this past Parliament. Well, I mean, I've, I've seen various uh, you know, folk in the media speculating about this. We, we don't speculate about this. We're focusing on winning people's trust, inspiring people with a, a positive vision about Scotland's future. Well, Greens, I, I heard you say this week that you aspire to, to be a party of government at Greens, some point. Why not now? Greens in a a wide range of countries, including many other European countries, have been in government. And I I absolutely hold that aspiration uh, for my party. Very clearly, we've got six seats at the last election. Some of the polls are suggesting that we could double that uh, at this election. And that would be a good, strong group of free MSPs. So if you do that, would you consider going into government? Well... You know, we, we would look at the, the arithmetic in the next parliament and if the, if the leading party that has to form the next government 
wants to speak to us. I suspect most of our party would be willing to talk. There are really big differences, though, between ourselves and the SNP on a number of issues like oil and gas, like public transport, well, like the I nature mean, you, of the you, economy. You, you, I mean, you've been accused of being the little helpers in the last parliament. <laughs> Five budgets and you, two confidence votes you backed them you've on. You've been reading too many Tory leaflets, <laughs> honestly. You know, the, there, is a, there is a narrative that some on the right of politics like to create around that. In reality, actually, uh, the Tories have voted with the SNP on a number of issues. But on the key it votes, was, you voted with them in was, terms of the budgets and in terms of the confidence votes. It was green pressure that got the, the government, to the SNP, to stop working with the Tories to bail out the landlords and start bailing out tenants in the private rented sector, protecting them from eviction. Because you bailed out the SNP? Because we put pressure on the SNP. We always do that by putting positive, constructive ideas on the table. Now, away from the election campaign, a British diplomat is playing super sleuth to help solve the mystery surrounding a Scottish sailor whose grave he's found on Mauritius. The UK High Commissioner to Mauritius, Keith Allen, started his investigations after coming across the resting place of John Fairfall, a seaman from Airdrie who tragically drowned off the Paradise Island aged 21 in 1952. The Scot had been en route to the Montebello Islands to help conduct the first British nuclear bomb tests. I caught up with Keith Allen. I mean, I've always had a huge amount of interest um, and respect for the work that the Commonwealth War Graves Commission does, you know, um, you know, all over the world. They're sort of looking after, I think it's something like 23,000 different uh, sort of monuments, cemeteries around the world. And, uh, you know, where I've always been, I've always you know, taken an interest, but also had had a sort of responsibility in some ways as well in, in ensuring that the, it does get maintained and in helping the War Graves Commission where we can. And certainly in my, my recent posting in Russia with the Arctic convoys, we did a lot of that. So, um, yeah, we have, we have War Graves here in Mauritius, and I was just down, you know, checking up on things, seeing how things were. Um, we have the sort of graves from World War Two, World War One. Um, but then in a, in a corner there, I, I noticed this quite dirty old um, headstone and um, had a real good look at it. And, and yeah, absolutely then sort of realised it was uh, John Fairfull who was from Airdrie, um, not that far from where I'm from in Mount Vernon, um, who had uh, tragically drowned here while with the ship HMS Campania in 1952. I think uh, they were on their way and um, they'd pulled in here for some R&R and, and tragically he had, he had drowned. So his his grave um, is sitting in Mauritius. Yeah, and that, that was really the start of it. And then to uh, a degree of telling us that sometimes social media can be useful and do good things, you managed to reach out and have contact with his family. Indeed. I, I mean, I after that first visit, I just posted um, on Twitter. Really, I sort of do that as a way of raising, I think, the, the work that the Wargraves Commission does. Um, but I, I mentioned the name, the details, the ship. And it, it was probably six months later that I, out of the blue, had these messages from two or three family members um, <clears throat> Those were uh, nephews and nieces. One, one nephew, John Dorman, who's in Canada now, um, got in touch and said, you know, they had just, I think, been doing a, a name search and, and my tweet had come up and uh, that started that sort of discussion about their uncle, <clears throat> whom they'd never met, of course, and, and they just have memories of their mother telling them about their brother, his brother, who had, her brother, who had gone off and um, you know, and, and drowned in Mauritius, and no one had ever been able to visit. Um, so it was always just this story that John and his brother and sister remembered from when, you know, when they were young. It's very exciting to make that contact. Uh, I, I know you've mentioned the War Graves Commission, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, a couple of times. It is very important that uh, the work of the Commission is supported. I know that you're speaking from Mauritius. I'm in Queensferry, not far from me. In Fife, there's a Commonwealth uh, war grave, uh, uh, and there are numbers right across uh, the world. Important that we mark the work that they do, isn't it? Oh, indeed, it's hugely important. And um, I think, I mean, I mentioned, you know, obviously my time in Russia, where we had a lot of lot of um, sailors and servicemen and, and women from from Scotland who served on the Arctic convoys um, and travelled from Loch Yu all the way to Murmansk and Arthangelsk and are, you know, are buried now in you know, very, some very, very remote um, locations above the Arctic Circle. Um, but, but the war graves are there. They're every year. 
ensuring that everything is kept and maintained properly and, and given the respect that they certainly uh, you know, are due. You mentioned, you mentioned Fife, you know, I have close connections with uh, St Andrews and uh, so every time, what you find is you get so interested, so every holiday you go on or you go to visit friends or family, you, you look up the Wargis, um website and you can find where there is a cemetery near to where you're going to be and it gives you the history of the individuals who are buried there where they had served and that kind of thing. It's just a fascinating thing to do and, you know, and just, just go along and, and pay your respects. So more and more people are doing it thanks to you know, social media and online. I'm sure you come in for a bit of stick from some of your colleagues and friends uh, being our man in Mauritius. How difficult a job is that to have? <laughs> It's, uh, it's obviously, it's great. It's um, you know, a wonderful place. Uh, you know, we, we've been here, I've been here almost four years. I'm due to move on now this summer. Um, but it's been, it's been super. You know, there's, there's quite a lot, a lot going on. I mean, we, uh, there's quite a lot of business here, strong financial services sector, a lot of food and drink. We have a lot of Scottish food and drink um, coming, finding its way to Mauritius. A lot of tourists, of course one of the, the top tourist destinations across the sort of wider Africa region. Um, and we, you know, we have political issues. We have a Commonwealth connections. We, we, you know, we've been helping them with, um, we had a tragic oil spill here last year. So doing a lot to help then and working on uh, climate change as well. COP26 coming up in Glasgow, of course. So uh, Mauritius, a climate vulnerable island. We're doing what we can to, you know, to support them and, and hear the voices of these climate islands. So it's been, it's been lovely, but you're absolutely right. Um, I don't get much sympathy when I say I've had a hard day or it's been a bit busy here in Mauritius. <laughs> Do you know where you're going next, Keith? I don't know. I've got to sort of hang on a little bit. Um, it could be, um, you know, stay overseas or it could be uh, obviously the head office is in London. But we do, of course, now with the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, we now have an office in East Kilbride, Abercrombie House, which um, I think we're getting extra staff in there. So more and more vacancies, potential opportunities in East Kilbride. So you never know, perhaps back north of the border, which would be nice. Our man in East Kilbride, all the way from Mauritius. <laughs> Hi, Commissioner. Thank you very Thank much you indeed for joining us on the Week in Holyrood. Thank you so much. We began with an opinion poll this week, so let's end on another. And this one suggests that Nicola Sturgeon could actually miss out in her majority by just one seat. But there would be a majority for independence, according to this poll, for the Scotsman. It projects the Greens with 10 MSPs. The Scotsman poll shows there would be 74 pro-independence MSPs in the chamber at Holyrood, with 55 pro-union. The Conservatives would lose six seats but remain the second largest group. And by this measurement, Anas Sawa would lose one MSP and remain in third place. Remember, however, a week is a long time in politics. In the light of-